Welcome to the next installment of the Colorado Child Abuse and Neglect Attorney podcast series. You can follow our series at soundcloud.com slash Colorado Attorney Training. My name is Charmaine Britton, and I am your host for the series. Today, we will talk about using a trauma-informed approach. We welcome our panel. Today, we have Judge Meinster, who is the presiding juvenile judge in the first judicial district, Susan Archuleta, a trauma-informed expert who is with Metropolitan State University of Denver, Tony Minor, a parent with lived experience and a family support partner with Jefferson County Human Services, and Becky Wiggins, who is now a county attorney for Adams County and was previously a caseworker. So let's get started in our conversation today talking about why trauma is important, uh, why it's important to know about it, understand it, and do something about it. So let's start with a very basic question. What is a trauma-informed approach to working with children and families moving through the legal system? Let's start with, Susan, let's start with you, please. Thank you, Charmaine. Uh, a trauma-informed approach, it promotes a culture of safety, empowerment, and healing. And these are the necessary first steps for families to be better able and willing to develop their resiliency. And resiliency is a key to maintaining one's overall wellness in the face of adversity or when facing difficult challenges. It's really about picking yourself up after trauma. Great. Judge Meinster, what would you say is a trauma-informed approach to working with children and families? I always say that the families who walk through my courtroom have been beaten up by life and they don't need me to beat them up anymore. And to me, a trauma-informed approach means I recognize that, where these families are coming from, and that everybody in the courtroom, all the professionals recognize that so that we can create an environment where children and families feel safe and can then work towards improving the, the issues that brought them into the courtroom. Susan, you started to touch on this. Why is it so important to use a trauma-informed approach? Using a trauma-informed approach really demonstrates the most basic need of a survivor, and that's safety. Providing a survivor the opportunity not to feel empowered, but to be empowered. And then finally, survivors are better able to begin their journey to healing. And, then there's cons and when there is consistency and transparency throughout the legal system, it's about establishing trust. And trust, for me, has always been the currency. You always want to have a little something in the bank with the family that you're working with. Becky, what would you say about why it's important to use that trauma-informed approach? Well, I think particularly in the legal system, our legal system, unfortunately, is not, um, it's an adversarial system, typically. And that does not work uh, with these families. At the end of the day, these families are in control of everything that's happening in their case. We're there to help them, we're there to provide them support, but they're the ones that are in charge. They're the ones that need to have that, that control, that structure, that predictability. They need to be provided the opportunities to make the changes. And what we need to do is just kind of be there as their safety net in a way. Um, the more we can all give them that sense of control over the situation, the more we can all give that team approach to families, um, I think the better off they are in terms of doing the healing that we all really know that they can do. So there's a presumption here that by using a trauma-informed approach, it will result in families better able to carry forward with the treatment plans to move towards that outcome where children and families are together. 
And I think that that's really an important assumption that we establish that using a trauma-informed approach is going to result in a better outcome for families. Tony, could you please comment on that? Absolutely, Charmaine, thank you. And just as Judge Meister had said about the families that go through the systems that come into her courtroom, they already feel so beaten down by life that if we can help empower these families, the, the chances of them having such great success in their life, being able to get clean, being able to properly care for their children and being open to properly caring for them, their children. With this trauma-informed approach, it's more of partnering with families rather than coming at families saying, we know how to do this and we're gonna tell you how to do it. It's more of a, an approach of having a, having a listening ear uh, as Susan had said, you know, empowering it, to me, that equals healing in families. And I've seen it within my own family. Can you speak to, to that about how feeling empowered resulted in healing in your family, Tony? I have had many encounters with the child welfare system in my life. And when I did not feel empowered, when I felt like someone was coming in and beating me down and telling me what a horrible parent I was, it did not make me wanna move forward. I was unable to move forward with anything because we as parents are our own worst enemy. There is nothing that anyone out there that, can, that they could say to us that could make us feel any less than what we already do ourselves. Typically myself and the parents that I work with and that I've worked with before, we have to look at ourselves at the end of every single day. And we typically are telling ourselves that we're not good people because of mistakes that we had made. I fortunately, my very last case that I had over 18 years ago had a caseworker who came in and partnered with me and was very trauma informed and came in and said, Tony, what do you need? What can we do to help you and your family. Now, back then, I can say that we in Colorado were not very trauma-informed still, and um, I get to see that difference today working in the courts and seeing that now not only do they want to come in and help the parents, but they want to come in and help the children as well so that this does not turn into a generational effect. Judge Meinster, could you speak to maybe a little bit about your experience in seeing attorneys use a trauma-informed approach versus not using a trauma-informed approach? Oh, it makes all the difference in the world. Um, an attorney who is trauma-informed can help set the tone in the courtroom. In child welfare cases, especially the county attorney uh, tends to be the leader amongst counsel, and they absolutely set the tone and help keep the courtroom calm and allow the judge to do uh, good work with the families. When you say keeping the courtroom calm, what does that mean from a trauma-informed perspective? That is, that is a great question. And I think that takes, um, that can take years of experience to, or it has for me to learn the importance of a calm courtroom. Uh, I, I remember talking with um, Dr. Jerry Yeager, who's a familiar name to child welfare specialists in Colorado, and him saying to me that um, if you're not trauma informed, it doesn't matter what you're doing in the courtroom because parents and children can't hear you. Their heads are so full of noise and fear and anxiety that unless you're using a trauma-informed approach, they simply won't hear anything. It took me quite a while to understand the importance of a quiet courtroom. I tend to kind of thrive on a full courtroom with a lot of activity that doesn't bother me. And I had to learn that that is terribly distracting and upsetting to children and families. They need a place where we quiet down the background noise for them, where they can hear what the attorneys are saying, where they can hear what the judge is saying, and where they can have an experience that is positive. Susan, could you please comment on that from your perspective as uh, understanding trauma from 
a biological perspective. Yes, you know, in, in piggybacking on, uh, on what Judge Meinster just expressed, it's the difference between an attorney uh, talking with a parent and saying, I'm not here for you, I'm here with you. And so you're checking in with that parent. You're watching their body language. You're watching uh, hypervigilant behaviors and they're scanning the courtroom. When you think about when messages are given, the meaning and communication gotten from any interaction, it's the facial expression is conveying 55% of that message. The tone of the voice is conveying 38% of that message and your words are only carrying 7% of that message. And that's the hypervigilance of someone who has been traumatized, is a survivor of trauma and being re-triggered by new trauma. So if you think about having an interaction with a baby and you're, you're looking at the baby and you're smiling and you're talking and you're face to face, the baby has no idea what you're saying. The baby is responding to your facial expression. What is that facial expression conveying? What is that tone of voice conveying? Has no idea. The words don't carry. So it's important to check in with your client in the courtroom to make sure that they're understanding what's being said. Judge Meinster, did you want to comment on that as well? No, it made me it made me think of um, of an example that I try to keep in mind. Uh, before the pandemic, I would start my family drug court with roll call, you know, and there could be 40 parents on, on our docket and I'd go through and call each name just to make sure everybody was there. And one time a mother, when it was her turn on the docket, came up to the podium and when we started to talk, she said, you know, I always feel so good at roll call when you call my name and you look at me and you smile. And I remember thinking to myself, how many times have I missed the opportunity to do that? And trying to think that one small thing can make such a difference. And it's what Susan was just talking about. It's that connection, it's the eye contact, and it's the facial expression that speaks volumes to that parent and can give them a message of, this person cares. Becky, I, I want to hear from you because you've already set the, uh, the bar that it, the courtroom is an adv adversarial experience. So what do you do? Well, and I was just going to say that's so important coming from a judge for clients to feel heard, um, validated, and again, in, in charge to some degree. It, and I feel like I'm a little bit of a broken record, but it really does take that team approach. A lot of that, as Judge Meister said, comes from the county attorney as well. And we can get very busy with busy dockets and just move through and kind of do our thing. But just taking a minute and um, saying good morning to, to a parent who's there so they don't feel that adversarial sense in the courtroom. I, I have recently heard um, some uh, respondent parents counsel call it a defense team. That kind of language, I don't, I, I think does not necessarily help move kind of a team approach forward. I understand that sometimes um, these cases have to move in directions that, that are adversarial. I mean, that's just unfortunately part of the situation. We all desperately come to the table wanting the same thing. Nobody is in this work who doesn't want to see families succeed and doesn't want families to reunify in a safe way. Everyone in that courtroom wants the same thing. At some point, sometimes that can't happen. And then we end up in an adversarial situation, but it does not need to feel um, adversarial, if that makes sense. We can make our arguments to the court in a way that shows respect and dignity for everybody involved um, and I think that's 
it's incredibly important. I, I, I can remember many circumstances where a parent after a termination of parental rights hearing has come up to the caseworker and myself as the county attorney and said, you know, I'm sorry this happened, but thank you for all your help. So it doesn't have to be, you know, a, a fight as much as, as sometimes it, it tends to be. And I do just want to piggyback on, you know, you, we've all seen clients or parents that are fighting or, you know, it's the fight, flight, or freeze kind of situation response to trauma. And those check-ins that um, Susan and, and, and Judge Meister, well, everyone has talked about, those check-ins are really important to make sure that a client or a parent is understanding what's happening and feels that sense of support. It doesn't need to be that the hearings take longer it could be that just the time before and after the hearing is a little bit longer, if that makes sense. Tony, what do you think? I see with all of this, and especially the way that Judge Meinster runs her courtroom um, when she's doing it for the family treatment court, that she makes it personal. Like she said, she makes eye contact with people. And I have heard time and time again from the parents that appear before her how they know that she's listening. And for the first time in their life, they feel like a judge really cares and that a judge is really listening to them. All too often, parents feel like they're just another case. They're just another number. And I have many conversations with parents letting them know because they're not necessarily understanding that their caseworker or the judge that they're before has got hundreds of different cases. And to try to not take it so personal that they are cared for and they don't necessarily get that until they appear before Judge Meinster. She is one of the few judges that I've ever worked with that does make it personal, that does make the eye contact and that does show that she cares. So, and to me, when you make it that personal, that equals trauma-informed. That's great to know. Becky, I'd like to spend some time talking about why maybe a trauma-informed approach might be so challenging for county attorneys. I'm hopeful that it isn't, um, but I think that it is not necessarily taught in law schools. Um, I think that generally the legal system is in the media and um, in some training thought of as kind of a fight, you know, objection, yelling, screaming, everyone's getting excited, the courtroom's an exciting place. And this area of law is different. This area of law is very complicated. And it might be kind of simple from a, from a legal perspective. There's not a ton of statutory framework that we have to think about. There's not a ton of case law, but it's very complicated in terms of how to do it well and how to understand where people are coming from. You have to have a basic understanding of psychology. You have to have a basic understanding of trauma. You have to base, have a basic understanding of systems theory and other social work theories. You have to appreciate the role that you're in. And I, I think, you know, to, to boost up Judge Meister and Judge Delgado and, you know, uh, there, there are some judges who have been doing this for many years. It takes some time to really get that. Um, and sometimes uh, with rotating benches, sometimes judges can struggle. Sometimes attorneys that are coming into the field um, early on can struggle. Sometimes if you're coming at this from, and you, your experience is in criminal, it's a very different arena than, than this area. So I think that if people were exposed to more things like this podcast, for instance, um, I, I think there's a willingness and a desire to do the work well. That was very well stated and exactly why we're doing this podcast. Susan, as, as a follow-up to that, what do county attorneys need to know about trauma and how it impacts the families who are moving through the system? I think we've talked a, a lot about some good strategies just being real and and having a calm presence but 
what are the, the, the important things that county attorneys need to know about dealing with trauma? One of the important things that I believe county attorneys need to know that again, these are very powerful and emotional moments for families. And just as child welfare professionals in the field, I would say county attorneys as well in the field need to check in with themselves. And sometimes it can be their own fear of not knowing how to be responsive to someone who has experienced trauma, or it could be that some of their, their own personal life experiences are being triggered by this particular client, okay? Or a uh, person that they're working with. And again, as you all have stated, that, that comes with time and that comes with your own personal self-awareness as to what's happening for you. When a parent is in that situation, and I have you know, had the, the privilege of, of testifying uh, in uh, hearings in, in Judge Meinster's courtroom, that they're coming from three different places. So I'm gonna ask you to picture a triangle and I'm gonna talk a little bit about Cartman's trauma triangle, okay? And really what that entails is, if you're picturing a triangle, on the left side is gonna be the victim, on the right side is gonna be the bully, and on the bottom is gonna be the rescuer. And dependent on what the parent is experiencing coming into the courtroom on any particular hearing, they're going to fall into one of those three categories. They're going to come in and if they're going to be the victim, they're already feeling defeated. Everybody is against me. They're going to keep my children. All of these thoughts are running through their head. This is too much. I can't manage this. How am I going to be expected to do everything that the court is going to order me to do? They're coming from a victim place. Now, if they are coming from a bully place, they're going to be posturing. They are going to be posturing with their attorney, with the county attorney, with the caseworker, with the guardian at litem, with the judge. They are going to be angry and everybody's going to know about it. If they're coming from the place of a rescuer, they want to fix everything. I can do all of this. I can do everything I'm being asked to do. I, I promise I can do this. I have to rescue this situation. I can do this. So if you're seeing the different dynamics being played out, that's a function of their own trauma. And they reenact their own trauma as a function of trauma response. So, you can see if they're falling into one of those three categories and respond accordingly. Tony, what do you think about what Susan just mentioned and how does that resonate for you? I think that I probably at different points in my life have been all three. I can say that during my last case, when it opened, that I was very much the victim and I was not at a point in my life where I could hear anything else because I already felt so horrible about myself and about what I had created and done to my two daughters. Had it happened earlier in um, my drug use, I would have been the bully. And I share this, you know, I think that it's so important for people with lived experience that have come out of this stuff successfully to train, to train judges, to train attorneys. Uh, I, I train CASAs, our court-appointed special advocates that work with the children that are involved in dependency and neglect court. And it is so important, I think, for people to hear from people like me who have successfully completed many, many systems so that they can lose some of the biases that they might have and so that they can see just how them partnering with families can really make a difference. 
peer support is so important for families that are going through this. I sit down with families and at first they think that the court has stuck me in as a spy, um, that I'm just gonna go back, you know, I'm just trying to talk to them because I wanna report everything back to the court. But once I start engaging with families and really start talking to them about my own lived experiences, they're looking at me going, wow, you can't make this stuff up. And I'm like, no, you're absolutely right. You can't make this stuff up. I understand. And I have been, like I said, in all three of those positions at one time or another in my life. And to really help to get the parents to see the professionals that are involved in their life as their partners, as a shoulder at the moment, if that's what they need, and to get the professionals that are working with them to see themselves as that as well. Becky? Can you comment on this? Do you see this in, in court, that trauma triangle? A absolutely. And I would say that sometimes um, you see a parent almost going through the stages of the triangle. Um, I've seen parents going through all of those. And, you know, the, the days that are the very best in this work are days when you actually see the growth and development of a, a parent to the point where they want to, they want to be. And you close a case and you see a, a couple, I'll, I'll never forget this, this one case. I mean, this was a case where, you know, you, you don't want to do it, but sometimes you see cases, you come in and you say, wow, this is, this is a woozy, right? Like uh, this is, this might not go well. You always hope, if you don't have any hope, you can't be in the field anymore. Um, but I'll never forget this one case and this couple at the end, they had their baby and they're sober and they just, I, I, we watched them go through it. We watched them go through the aggression and the pushback. We watched them go through the um, victim and we watched them go through the rescuer. And I don't know that it's in that order. I don't necessarily want to allude to that, but they succeeded and they were, you know, in the court with their child and they thanked every single professional. And what I loved about it was that they, they acknowledged that it, every professional in that courtroom and every professional who had worked with them played a role in helping to boost them up. Um, you know, those, sometimes people say, oh, the greatest days are adoption days. Eh, that's the second, you know, the, the best is when families reunify and get healthy and children are um, happily returned to their homes. And frankly, that is the majority of what we do. That's, that's what's beautiful. That, when this works, this, this works. And families, the vast majority of families reunify. And so, you know, I think we need to remember that when we think about what we as a system are doing. Coming at this from a fighting stance typically does not lead to success. Coming at this from a stance where we're all trying really hard to, to make this work and, and getting quickly to the treatment and the services the families need, that's what statistically leads to success. Judge Meinster, what do you see in your courtroom? You know, some of what we're talking about right now um, makes me focus on we need to meet parent, recognize where parents are at and meet them where they're at at any given moment. And sometimes for me, that means ignoring behavior or not being punitive towards behavior that is typically seen as disrespectful in a courtroom. And not just me, everybody, it's like Becky keeps bringing us back to the team. Everybody on the team has to be able to do this. You know, sometimes I'll let people keep a hat on in the courtroom or sunglasses. It make, might make them feel a little bit more protective. Some people sit and rock back and forth and I don't tell them to sit still generally, even if it's driving everybody else crazy because they're trying to manage anxiety. Sometimes even their language, which might not be appropriate for a courtroom, but there's a way to kind of address that without saying, without just coming down on the parent. Even sometimes the way they're dressed. And I think we see this particularly in our mothers and um, it, in young women who have often been victims of sexual assault. Mm -hmm. And they'll come to court dressed 
what to us looks really inappropriate. But to them, they might think that they've dressed up because they're going to court and that's what they're supposed to do. So, you know, maybe having a team member take that parent aside and suggest to them a better way to dress for court is better. Uh, sometimes um, the team can do, in the courtroom can be modeling good parenting. Like when we encourage our parents to bring their kids to court. And if a, a small child is acting out or having a tantrum, sometimes one of our attorneys who's a parent themselves can go over quietly and intervene and model some good parenting and help that parent. So instead of the courtroom just be getting out of control because of the chaos, it can be managed in a way that's a learning experience for that parent. Susan? Yes, Judge Meister and Becky, I, I agree with you totally with what uh, you both have said that, you know, when parents are coming into the courtroom, they are trying to maintain their status quo as best they can. And if that's the way that they chose to dress for the day, if that's trying to stay grounded and centered by moving about in their chair, and they are trying, desperately trying to maintain their status quo. They need to feel that normalcy and that's what's providing them calm. And they are learning opportunities for them. That would be a conversation after court. Sometimes as well, they may be baiting someone to call them out because they're in that bully stage of Cartman's triangle. I dare you to ask me to take my glasses off. Right? And are you going to bite at that? Are you going to just nod your head and then after the proceedings, have a conversation with that person and say, gosh, we want everything to go so successful. And, you know, the judge could have called you out today for wearing that hat and sunglasses, and she chose not to. And she wants you to be successful as well. She wants you to get through this process as well. So I think that you really need to look at it based on what it is you know about that family, where you believe they would be in that triangle in the moment, and work to be responsive to it, which means that you've thought about it a little bit, you've thought it through, or you're gonna be reactive, and you're gonna be in the moment. And that reactionary, uh, statement can really cause somebody to rock it. So I would say take all those things into consideration. Well, let's talk about another thing that intersects with issues of trauma, and that's racial equity issues. Susan, could you please speak to the racial equity issues that intersect? Yes. Trauma? You know, being in this field is, is, uh, and doing this work as long as I have been, that we all know that systems aren't designed to raise children. And when a child and any child is removed from their family and everything they know, it's going to be traumatic for them. Unfortunately, implicit bias is going to have the propensity to dictate reactions when decisions are being made by the child welfare and the legal system. When a removal is necessary, the ethnicity of the family needs to be taken into consideration. And that child should be placed with kin whenever possible, kept in the same school, playing with the same friends, be in an environment that's comfortable and familiar for them. What people also need to realize is that most families are experiencing a dual trauma. And the dual trauma would be their children being taken away and their past life experiences. Whether that be homelessness or unemployment, mental health related issues, addiction, co-occurring, whatever those past experience may be, they're experiencing that as well and the removal of their children. So, Using a trauma-informed approach with families of color is really gonna require some additional time. 
because historically, racism and discrimination have been persistent in our country with the criminal justice system, healthcare, law enforcement, and certainly with child welfare system and the foster care system. So the system isn't to be trusted. You packed a whole lot into that statement, Susan, thank you. Would anyone else like to comment on the intersectionality of racial equity and uh, trauma? Um, I just think being aware of that historical trauma and the fact that that, that historical trauma is there and it's intergenerational and to piggyback on what Susan said, um, our system is not a system that has uh, earned the trust of um, African-American, Native American, immigrant, immigrant communities. So we have an additional obstacle to overcome there. And I think how, you know, I think how you overcome that obstacle is acknowledging that you don't know, you don't get it. And you're there to listen and you're there to learn. Mm -hmm. And I, my hope is that with, with the introduction of Families First and the significant efforts that um, the system is trying to make to keep people placed within their family, the, ex the extension of kin um, to be anyone uh, that a family sees as kin and the supports that we can put around families to try to allow children to be placed with kin we have a lot of work to do in that area. Um, we have to work harder to try to get children with kin as quickly as possible. Hopefully we can keep children in their homes. That's the goal. And just put as many services in place as we can right in that home. But if we can't, you know, as Susan said, the second is those kin. And the third is we do have to keep recruiting for foster parents to, to be available for children. So there's a lot of work to do and um, I think the, the, the start of it is acknowledging there's a problem and being willing to listen. There's some commonalities that I'm hearing. And one of the really important things that we can do to be trauma-informed is to understand that everyone has a story and they bring not just the current events into the courtroom, but the historical piece as well. And we don't know, and it's important to be open to understanding and to bring up your own awareness about what that family is experiencing and then partner with them. Tony, would you please comment on that? Partnering is the best way to go in any system, not just in the child welfare system, but any family serving system. I think that we at times tend to put too much on the child welfare system as thinking that they are the end all be all um, instead of looking at how everyone can partner together with this family. Community supports, their natural supports, anyone that comes into contact with this family, it is so important to partner with them. And that means walking alongside them or trying to understand them and not just flipping through their, their case file going, oh, this is what's going on with this family, but to actually try to put yourself in their shoes and to understand where they're coming from. That is the only way that we will ever truly partner with someone. And it doesn't mean that you've had to have lived it, but just try to experience it within your own mind and ask yourself, if this was my child or if this was my family, how would I want them to be handled? How would I want everyone to engage with them and interact with them if this was happening within my own family? Judge Meinster, could you please comment on this? We are at a crisis point in this country and in the child welfare system, but in crisis, there's opportunity. Um, I, I will tell you, I don't feel qualified particularly to speak on the topic. My commitment in my own jurisdiction is to provide more training and to start a dialogue. We have not sufficiently addressed issues of um, diversity and minority overrepresentation, and we all have work to do. 
Well said. Becky, now let's kind of dig in a little bit to talk about some of those concrete strategies that a county attorney can employ to be trauma-informed. I think the first thing is just taking a minute. Um, when, you know, as Tony said, you're reading through a file, right? These are, these are people, and these are people who um, have potentially a lot of historical trauma, have potentially intergenerational trauma, who are coming to us, um, hopefully with a desire to make some change. And so just to take a minute and acknowledge the human factor of what we're doing, as Judge Meister indicated, having a welcoming and kind demeanor in a courtroom, having a calm demeanor in a courtroom, having a demeanor of control, um, not control in a bad way, but in a calm control sort of way, and doing the best that you can do as a county attorney to have the team approach to, to case management. There might be pushback from other parties. And I think you, know, you, need, you need to acknowledge that. But as a county attorney, you can always maintain that same demeanor and that same way of doing business. The only person, the only thing you can really control in life is yourself. So for you, even if you're getting pushback from other parties, you're gonna to continue to give that message. And the hope is that the parent hears that message and, um, and feels that they have some control of the courtroom and they have some control of their situation and they um, are being heard. I think when you do, um, often we're doing cross-examination of parents um, we do a direct examination of a caseworker and we'll do cross-examination of a parent. You know what? You don't have to be mean when you're cross-examining people. You can acknowledge the fact that, there, that there's a lot of good things happening and that sometimes there are some things that are not going so well. And you can do it in a kind way. Um, my, my colleague was saying, you know, be a scalpel, don't be a, a, a chainsaw. Right, go in there and and um, sounds kind of nasty, but you know you have to just focus on the things that you need to focus on for your case. You do not need to um, go beyond what's necessary to prove statutorily. Um, as Tony indicated, the parent is their worst enemy. You don't need to keep going at that. Um, sometimes we need to remove children permanently from from parents, and we have to have a termination of parental rights. Um, and you can do that in a way to meet your statutory requirements without having that parent leave um, feeling even worse than they're going to feel. The theme that I'm hearing is that a little kindness will go a long way. In the courtroom, when county attorneys work together uh, and approach families in a partnership, and engage them. That's really powerful. Are there any other comments or things that you all want to say that have not been said yet? Um, Susan. Yes, there is a there is a saying that Eleanor Roosevelt made, and it's just a statement that just resonates for me. And she said that when you're making decisions for yourself, use your head. When you're making decisions for others, use your heart. And that statement resonates for me with child welfare. I think it's also important to note that we're even moving away from the term child welfare and embracing child and family well-being as, as a way to think about how we interact with families and what our goal is. It's about child and family well-being. Using a trauma-informed approach helps us to facilitate child and family well-being. 
Now, parting words of wisdom. Let's start, let's start with Judge Meinster. I think the concept of a team working together is the most important piece of a trauma-informed approach. It's, it's taking everything we've said this past hour, talking about um, kindness, but it is truly a team coming together and having a common vision for what we hope to accomplish for children and families, everybody being willing to participate in trainings and take a risk and do things differently. You'll come in for criticism if you run a courtroom this way. Uh, it, it, is, it is not always a popular approach. A lot of attorneys are more comfortable with a more traditional adversarial approach. But if we're interested in different outcomes and truly getting better results, then I think we embrace what we've all talked about today and take the risk and give it a try. Susan, could you go next, please? In this work, we're all going, we're all going to see the proceedings in the legal system through the lens that our role dictates. And we will see and hear things that might shock the mind and can rock us to our core. Given that, it is so necessary for all the professionals who work with children and families to recognize that trauma-informed work involves everyone. And for some, that's going to require a paradigm shift. And it's going to move you away from the thought process of what's wrong with you to what's happened to you. Staying with a family, staying with a parent versus trying to fix them. Empathy. Empathy is compassion in action. And I would say that I would encourage all attorneys, all county attorneys to really take care of yourselves because the very thing that makes you good can also make you vulnerable to vicarious trauma. Great. Thank you so much, Susan. Becky? To county attorneys in particular, I just uh, want everyone to remember why you got into this field. So no one happens or falls into child and family well-being. I like that and I'm going to start using it. Um, you choose this and you choose this because you want families to succeed. And so um, we all just need to take a minute to remember what, why we are doing what we're doing. We need to remember that we have a lot of, uh, we have a lot of power to make things um, go a certain way. We can fight back against an adversarial system by using our, um, our strength um, and desire to move together as a team we can control uh, in some ways the dialogue in a courtroom. And so I guess I, the, the challenge would be to kind of push back against this us versus them mentality in the courtroom and take back that team approach, which is what has been proven to be successful for families. Beautiful. And, a, and kindness will go a long way. Tony, take us out of this podcast with some parting words. I often share with people that when I was a little girl, not one time in my life did I say, when I grow up, I want to be an addict. Those were not the plans that I had. That when I grow up, I'm going to have children and I'm going to neglect them or I'm going to abuse them. That was not in my plan that I had in my life. Unfortunately, that was something that I had become. And now when I look back at it, that's just a chapter in my book of life. I don't have to be that person. I think that it's important to remember that there is not a day that goes by 
that when a parent is going through the child welfare system or any system, that they do not love their kids. As a matter of fact, parents that are addicted to substances will use those substances more because of the pain that they know that they have caused on their children. That is one of the hardest things for a parent to work through in order for them to get clean or in order for them to change this generational abuse or poverty that might be stricken into their life. We need to remember that parents are human and that we did not ask to have this kind of life, but we can be the ones to help them change the path that they're going on. It has been said that all it takes is one person to believe in you and that one person can make a difference in your life. I share with people all the time that, yes, I have a history. Yes, I've gone through all these horrible things. I have judges now who ask me to be in their courtroom. I have judges now that ask me to work with the parents that are going through the system. The people who I once saw as my enemies are now my colleagues and my friends and my biggest supporters that I have. And attorneys, whether they are district attorneys or prosecuting attorneys, judges, social workers, guardian ad litems, you too can support these parents in getting where they need to be. You just need to believe in them. That's what it took for me was to have that belief from somebody. We had a great dialogue today about how to use a trauma-informed approach when families are moving through the court process. Our guests noted some important points. First, let's work on our partnerships and collaboration with each other and most importantly, families. Second, let's be kinder to each other. Kindness will go a long way to minimize the trauma and create an environment where partnership and collaboration happens. Follow this series at soundcloud.com slash Colorado Attorney Training or subscribe for free on iTunes so you don't miss an episode. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next podcast in our series.